Hello and welcome to episode 86 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jeff Long. Jeff is a writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at JeffLongBP. Jeff, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Jeff, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. You know, I've been playing baseball kind of my whole life, and um, I ended up uh, kind of hurting my arm a little bit in in, uh, high school, and I sort of stepped away from the game for a little bit and then eventually came back to it actually when I was in grad school, started writing about it, and just sort of dove headfirst in. I I guess I kind of rekindled that childhood uh, love affair for the game, so... Um, you know, it was good. I think taking a couple of years off kind of gave me a chance to sort of, um, I don't know, decompress and, and not focus so much on the importance of playing and more on the importance of like enjoying the sport for what it is. And, you know, ever since then, I've just been writing and researching and doing kind of whatever I thought was interesting and sort of how I've ended up where I am today. Very, very fortunate along the way, no doubt. Last week, you had a couple of interesting posts at Baseball Prospectus. With Pitching Week, you introduced some new classifications for pitchers. You also talked about, uh, or wrote about rather, some of the logistics of robot umpires or an automated strike zone. So I wanted to talk to you about both of those things. Let's start with the automated strike zone issue. And I guess where we need to start here is, what are we actually seeing? What are we seeing right now? I know we used to use a pitch effect system that's largely been replaced or almost exclusively replaced by StatCast at this point, but what are we seeing on our iPads and on the broadcast when we see the strike zone appearing to us in digital form? With pitch effects, everyone's kind of a familiar, I'm not say everyone, but you know, most people are familiar with sort of the pitch effects era where you, know, you started seeing on your television screen the little strike zone box and you know, the plot of where the pitch ended up in that box. Um, that was all from PitchFX, which was an optical system, basically meaning they had multiple cameras that captured the ball in three dimensions. And, you know, they were able to use that to kind of plot out the flight of the ball and where it ended up on the strike zone. Uh, now, Major League Baseball has switched to a TrackMan-based StatCast system. And uh, it's a camera and radar-based system, but the cameras are largely used for kind of player tracking and things like that. So when you look at sprint speed and things of that nature... You know, it's basically coming out of the camera technology. The the ball tracking is largely done with a Doppler radar system, which is what TrackMan is best known for. Um, and so they are actually capturing the flight of the ball using the radar. Um, and, you know, that's creating a computer model of where the pitch is. And then they're essentially using some algorithms to, you know, clean up the uh, flight path of the ball they capture for the first, you know, uh, however many feet of the ball's flight and then uh, project it out forward to where it would, you know, cross at home plate, given all the things we know about physics and, you know, air density and all that kind of fun stuff. And then, you know, the zone that you see on TV, it, it can vary a little bit, uh, but generally speaking, it's a sort of um, standardized zone with the top and bottom of the zone set by stringers, which are actually people at the park who, you know, say this is where the top of the strike zone is, this is where the bottom of the strike zone is, um, which is typically really, really, really close to what umpires are actually calling. So it's not an exact one-to-one kind of strike zone match. And in fact, the strike zone that's called by umpires is not a perfect rectangle. Uh, it sort of has rounded off edges and, you know, bulges out a little bit in the top and the bottom. But uh, that's generally speaking what you're seeing when you actually watch a game and they show you, you know, or uh, I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, I'm watching a game on Gamecast or whatever while I'm at work, or I'm looking at it in my app uh, and you see where pitches are crossing the plate. That's 
basically StatCast or TrackMan data that's overlaid on that strike zone that's set by the stringers. And what's the delay? It seems like it's pretty close to in real time. What is the actual delay? There's multiple levels of it. Um, basically, uh, they work really hard to get as fast as possible that initial tracking data. And so they will take you know, the pitch, the first you know, however many milliseconds of the pitch, and then try and project forward in that way. Given the computer processing time and things like that, they can do a pretty real-time uh, outlay of what that pitch should have been or, or was. The challenge is that they end up having to go back and do a lot of post-processing. And so that's why you'll see, if you, if you look at like Brooks Baseball or something like that, a lot of times, you know, updates will be made overnight as the data is cleaned and reprocessed by TrackMan and, and Major League Baseball Advanced Media. So what you're seeing in real time is, is really close for the most part, um, but it's not 100% accurate. And in fact, you know, it's there's no claim that it's 100% accurate because they go up and clean it up and then re- reproduce new data the following morning uh, after the data has been cleaned and then, you know, adjusted for any issues they might have. You know, there were, there were a couple of stadiums at the beginning of last year that uh, the data had to be adjusted by a couple of inches, in fact, not, you know, some small minute amount. So it's not always 100% accurate, uh, and that's just the nature of the beast. It's very difficult to get extremely real-time results, even no matter how much people think that it's all 100% accurate immediately. It's just not the case. What level of accuracy are umpires? So that brings up another challenge, and we see people say this all the time. In fact, people in the comments on the article said this quite a bit, which is, well, you know, if the robot umps are 99% accurate and the humans are 90% accurate, then, you know, why don't we just go to robots now? It'll be much better. I think I really struggle with that kind of line of reasoning because I don't know how you, I don't know how you would even get to a number like they're X percent accurate. And the reason for that is because there's no clear definition of what the strike zone ought to be. There's a rule book strike zone, you know, uh, that if you read the rules, it's actually you know, the hollow below the kneecap is the bottom of the strike zone. And then the top of the strike zone is set by the midpoint between the top of the batter's pants and the top of their shoulders when they're taking their stance at the plate, um, which you would think is pretty clear. But the challenge is, A, the batter moves quite a bit typically uh, throughout the process of taking their stance. You know, when are you supposed to uh, set the top and bottom of the zone? And, you know, Major League Baseball hasn't dinged umpires for calling pitches that are outside of that quote-unquote rule book zone. Um, they actually, you know, kind of like the fact that umpires, uh, well, I shouldn't say like, but, you know, they've tolerated at least the fact that umpires will work outside of that sort of rule book zone, especially when it comes to varying counts. Uh, you know, if it's a 3-0 count, the zone looks different than in an 0-2 count. Um, those things kind of help level the playing field of the game a little bit and uh, you know without knowing what the zone is supposed to be or what the zone ought to be or what we're going to 100 percent this is exactly what it is no matter what and there's no changing based on count or handedness or pitcher or whatever then it's hard to say that you know the robots are 99 percent accurate or the humans are inaccurate it's just there's no clear definition of what the strike zone is or what it should be on any given pitch. And so how can you possibly say that one thing is more accurate than another or, you know, that something is 99% accurate versus 90% accurate or whatever? Those are just meaningless numbers that you're pulling out of the air. Yeah, and it's interesting. You mentioned earlier that the strike zone, as we see it now, is not a perfect square. And I'm curious if some of the misses that umpires have that we see visually are actually some of the things that we might actually like in that I think umpires give 
ace pitchers the benefit of the doubt on edge pitches. I think they changed the strike zone a little bit depending on what the count is. I think they call a ball and a strike different on a 3-0 count than an 0-2 count. And I wonder if that's inherently something, because people have been watching baseball this way forever, that people like about the game, even if it's something that those, I think, on those 0-2 calls where the strike zone may get a little wider, those are probably some of the more egregious misses. But I wonder if people actually like that without really realizing it. What do you think? Oh, totally. And, you know, uh, to me, I think I think those are great points. And I think the challenge for me has always been it's easy for people to reason those things away and be like, oh, you won't even notice it, you know. But I think the things that you will notice are the things that don't happen now that will start happening with a robot zone, right? So if you set a really firm strike zone, you know, as I mentioned, the edges of the zone are kind of rounded off, right? So if you have pitchers who start throwing like, you know, 95 mile an hour fastballs in 0-2 counts that are letters high and just over the inside corner of the plate, like that'll now be a strike. And that's never been a strike. Um, So I think those types of things where the things that, you don't know what you, you know, you don't know what you had until it's gone. And you also, you know, don't know what's not happening until it starts happening. And I think it would have a huge impact on the game. And I just think that people, for whatever reason, it's easy for them to ignore the things that would go away or the things that would change because they think it's better for whatever reason. But without actually having to experience it, it's easy to say that. I think when you start seeing those extra strikes come or, you know, guys start nibbling on O2 strikes and trying to hit that perfect edge of the zone or the perfect corner of the zone. It's going to be frankly, I think kind of annoying to watch uh, more so than, you know, the, the battle and the duel between batter and pitcher that happens now. It's almost going to be like pitcher versus robot zone. Uh, and the batter is just trying to not, you know, get called out on some ridiculous strike. And this is what MLB The Show, the video game, is. I find playing this game to be exceptionally frustrating, especially versus other people, because in the game, you have a little square with hot and cold zones in it, and you're obviously trying to throw on the very edge of the strike zone where there's batter has a hard time hitting, but every single person just throws the ball right on the corner every single time. It's really <laughs> hard to hit, and it's really difficult. I, I find it to be excruciating. I don't want real baseball to be that way either. Yeah, and it, well, and I think too, you see a lot of. I mean, I personally, I'm always a fan of like uh, taking game theory to like its extreme ends because it's really sort of fun and obnoxious to do it. So, like when I play MLB the Show against people online, I'll just throw like 18 straight curveballs because it's really easy to throw pitches for strikes in MLB the Show if you like have any sort of semblance of timing. So I'll just throw like 18 straight curveballs, and I'll start getting really nasty messages from people that are like, "Throw me a fastball," you know, it's like the movie Major League, and I'm like, "Why? Like you obviously can't hit curveballs, so why would I throw you a fastball?" You know, and you know, you you see a lot of funny things in that video game in particular. You know, I think the swing rate is like 80% or something, and the rate of people throwing strikes is like 80 or 90% because it's just not realistic. But that's the sort of thing that happens when you have a robot zone. I think it's a great point because that's not the kind of baseball that would be fun to watch. It's kind of fun to play, but it's really only fun to play because you have to go through, you know, 120 pitches or whatever in a game. And so, like, if I can swing at the first one every time, it'll go a lot faster. Is there a different strike zone for left-handed batters compared to right-handed batters? Oh, yeah. It's actually kind of funny. I would call the right-handed zone fairly normal. It's it's fairly rectangular. It basically rounds off the edges and gives you a little bit of a, um, a little bump out on the outside and inside corners of the plate. But for the most part, it's fairly standard. Lefties have a similarly shaped zone. It's sort of that rounded rectangle with, you know, the, the corners kind of being rounded off. But it's shifted pretty significantly, a couple of inches at least, towards the outside part of the plate. So it's really hard to get inside strikes on lefties. 
And um, you uh, anecdotally, and I, I'm, I'm sure that someone has written about this and, you know, I apologize for not knowing it offhand, but, you know, you, I think you tend to see, or at least I tend to notice that guys don't really go inside on lefties quite as much as they go inside on righties. And frankly, it's because they don't get those calls. So in tennis, there is still a physical umpire on the court and they have a digital replay system as well. And I'm wondering if that might actually be the best case scenario for Major League Baseball here. I don't think umpires should be replaced, but I do think that this technology should be available to assist them. I wonder if umpires made the call in real time and then had the chance to review their call between the time the pitcher throws the ball to the catcher. I wonder if a system like that might be in place. What do you think the best way this technology could be used to actually assist umpires during the games? Yeah, I definitely think that assistance is a good application for it. You know, a lot of people mentioned um, tennis as an example of one where they're like, well, you know, in tennis, it's so accurate. There are a couple of things. One is, you know, in, in tennis, again, you have very clearly defined lines and things like that. Um, cricket's also another good example of a sport where they have a, a similar kind of computer track uh, tracking model that, you know, can be used from time to time. But I think the biggest difference is that it's sort of in a challenge scenario where, you know, a player can challenge, like, oh, well, hey, that ball hit the line. So, you know, I want to look at it on the Hawkeye or whatever they call it. Um, you know, I think that's an appropriate potential use of the technology, not that we should have pitchers protesting calls all the time. But if we can assist umpires with making calls and assist in training them, um, which is something they've been doing for a long time, you know, ever since PitchFX umpires have been reviewing their calls uh, after the games, they've been sent, you know, reports that show the calls that they've missed and the calls that they've gotten correct. Um, I think that's the right way to do it. And especially if it's a, you know, I don't even know if real time is necessarily the right way to do it, but maybe it's like, you know, each half inning the umpire gets a, a little, a quick update from, you know, someone in attendant or whatever that just says like, Oh, Hey, you know, just FYI, you're calling a low zone today. You might want to bring it up a little bit or something. You know, those things I think could be really helpful. Um, but I do think there's a challenge of like in real time using the technology and the human, it, it just can get complicated. And I think it would only exacerbate, the the issues that we have now of undermining the kind of umpire's authority by looking at you know twitter maps of pitches that aren't accurate um so i think it has to be really skillfully deployed if that's what you know wants to be done but it's certainly something that could have value if done the right way now i know that the statcast system sometimes misses pitches are there other errors of note as well there's definitely uh, in the beginning of the year there was definitely some issues there were a few stadiums that were particularly challenging to uh calibrate <laughs> i should say uh they were off by a little bit you know anytime you see a new uh, stadium implementation you see devices moved you see uh, a new stadium built or a new installation or product software hardware updates you know all those things can impact the accuracy or the consistency of the system so uh, we do tend to see some issues that need to be calibrated uh, in the article we talked a little bit about the difference between calibration and uncalibrated and non-calibrated i should say um, data and you know even looked at what the difference would be between a human and a non-calibrated system versus a calibrated system you know, all those things come into play. And I think it's just, it's a little bit of a maintenance game, right? Like any, any technology system, you have to constantly maintain it if you want it to perform optimally. Um, so the, I think missing entire pitches is, is a big issue. I think, you know, figuring out those calibration issues could be a big one as well, because in, you know, the home opener of a new installation, you don't want pitches that are four inches off the zone being called strikes with routine, you know, uh, routinely, that would be an issue. 
Is there a certain type of pitch or a certain type of pitcher that may befuddle the system more? Not necessarily. Uh, I actually, again, I haven't seen research on this, but I would be curious to see um, if, you know, high spin or low spin pitches have an impact on it. But it's less about the pitcher or the pitch as it is about environmental factors. So things like uh, the metals, the metal wires that hold up the netting behind home plate, uh, rain, even, you know, any particulate in the air, those can all have some potential impacts on the ability of the radar system to accurately track the pitch. Basically, you know, if you think about it as the more noise there is in the system, the more difficult it can be for it to accurately track things. And it's actually, I mean, this is not a new problem, right? When you, if you've ever used a radar gun or if you've ever, uh, you know, read anything online about how police are trained to use radar guns when they're looking for like people speeding on the highway, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of considerations that go into the way that radar is used. You know, there's, you have to understand your, uh, the angle of the radar system to the object that's being tracked and other potential uh, you know, factors, mostly metallic items or large moving objects in between you and the item or in between or in around the item that's moving. Any of those can have an impact on the ability of the system to track the, you know, object, in this case, the baseball. So all those things can impact it. So it's more like those environmental things than it is a particular pitch or a particular pitcher who has, you know, a strange release point or something. So I think the bottom line, automated strike zone, not yet. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a challenging thing to try and implement. And, you know, it looks really good. It sounds really good. But once you get beyond the surface, it's really very, very challenging. There's a lot of potential issues. And, you know, those things need to be figured out before it is put into place. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's not something that you just willy-nilly implement some new technology into, I think. Moving off of the robot ump issue and onto some of the pitcher classifications you guys did at BP last week, the three different classifications you came up with for pitchers were power, command, and stanima. Uh, before we break down each one, tell me what you were hoping to accomplish with these three categories of pitchers. Well, you know, we originally started with five and we rolled out power, command, and stamina. Um, we also wanted to include uh, deception or funk, as Harry Pavlidis likes to call it, um, and also stuff, which is, you know, the ability of your pitches to move or how much your pitches might move in, in a particular way. Um, we couldn't really get those last two to a, to a spot that we wanted them in, but what we really wanted was some approach um, characteristics, really kind of some heuristics to better understand how a pitcher approaches the game. And this, you look at like um, baseball reference, for example, and you can look at splits of like how a batter performs against power pitchers versus, you know, command guys or whatever. And they look at their, their sort of definition is by outcomes, which is certainly one way to do it. Um, we really wanted to do sort of the process or the approach of how pitchers try and get outs or how they attack the game. And so that's why we went with things like pitch usage and velocity as opposed to like strikeout rate. Um, for command, we really wanted to get at people pitching at the corners and also pitching towards the edges of the zone. You know, we weren't trying to look at how much a catcher moved his glove or something like that. You know, that's, that's an outcome. We really wanted to get at the, the target or the intention behind it when we looked at these different um, kind of data points. So that's really how we went about it. And the hope was to just be able to classify pitchers and look at how different guys approach things differently and, and what does that mean for their arsenal and for their ultimate success or failure. Well, let's start with power pitchers. How did you define power beyond just looking at velocity? Yeah, so, you know, velocity is obviously a big part of it, um, but we also wanted to take into account, you know, 
how often are they using those harder pitches, whether it's like a hard cutter or a sinker or a four seam fastball, you know, it's certainly a, a component of it is velocity, but we also want to know, like, is that a weapon of theirs? You know, it, you can have a guy who throws really, really, really hard, but only uses it as maybe uses it as a strikeout pitch. And he's using, you know, uh, breaking balls or a change up or something to get ahead of batters. That doesn't necessarily make them a power pitcher, right? It sort of makes them, a guy who really likes to pitch backwards, I guess. So we wanted to look at overall velocity in the system, whether it's off-speed pitches or fastballs. Um, but we also wanted to look at how often they're using that fastball or those fastballs to get ahead of hitters. And so that's why you'll see guys like Bartolo Colon rank relatively highly for uh, something that, you know, the guy does not throw 99 miles an hour. Bartolo Colon has no business being in a in a power pitcher grouping. But he pitches like a power pitcher. He pitches like there's a lot of fastballs. Um, and so velocity is certainly part of it. But you can see from a guy like Cologne who gets up there in the list anyway, because how often he uses those fastballs and, you know, the way that he actually attacks hitters. Yeah. And Cologne is interesting. He jumped out to me as well. But I, I saw Cologne. He used to be he used to have a lot more velocity. And I just wonder if he used to pitch a certain way because he had a, an extreme amount of velocity when he was throwing 95, 96 when he was with Cleveland. And then he just never really stopped throwing those types of pitches, even though his velocity dropped. I thought that was really interesting to see him on that list. Yeah. And he also shows up on the command score list. I think he's about 10th for uh, all pitchers, including relievers. And, um, you know, it, it's funny because he pitches like a power pitcher, but he has command. And I think that's the reason that he's able to be on that power pitcher list. Frankly, if he didn't have such good command, I think he would probably mix in some other pitches a bit more to keep hitters off balance. But as it stands right now, he really doesn't have to do that because he's able to command his pitches so well, pitch to the corners and, you know, keep batters off balance with that fastball. And, you know, it works for him. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's all anybody really wants, right? It doesn't matter how you get there. But if you're getting outs, that's that's all we need. I'm curious in the command classification, how you handle pitchers who might command two pitches really well, but not the third. How do they rate there? For command pitchers, it's a challenge. And I think you bring up a good um, issue. And part of the reason that there's not a great command statistic overall is is one of the reasons is exactly what we've pointed out. Um, it's really hard to figure out where pitchers intend to throw the ball. <laughs> uh, we had I had this argument on Twitter the other day because somebody was uh, had a you know video of Greg Maddox and they were like, oh, the catcher's you know moving his glove all the way across the zone. Like even Greg Maddox didn't have great command. And I was like, well, how do you know he was aiming for the catcher's glove? You know, you, Greg Maddox is a wily character, right? He's probably not necessarily aiming for the catcher's glove. He's throwing the ball wherever he damn well pleases. So we tried to account for those types of things. You know, in a certain way, you can't necessarily account for a guy being able to throw two of his pitches really well and, and another one not. But um, in the aggregate, our hope was that we would get at pitchers who were really good command guys. And the idea being that if you do, let's say you're a four pitch pitcher and, you know, you have two plus command pitches, one average command pitch and one really poor one. In theory, you're going to use that poor command pitch less. And so you it'll sort of net out that you'll end up pretty positive. But that's not necessarily going to be the case for everybody. It's just one of the downfalls of trying to do overall pitcher statistics as opposed to pitch level statistics. Yeah, and the power group was, the top of the group was almost exclusively relievers. You had to go beyond the top 10 to find any starters. And the top of that list was Chapman, obviously. He's so far above even the hardest throwing relievers. He's just like setting human evolution ahead of where we should be. I feel like he's 50 years what pitchers will be, everybody will be what Chapman is, but he's 50 years ahead. 
Yeah. Well, and it's actually kind of funny because you look at like Chapman being so far ahead of everybody else. But what I think is interesting is, um, you know, Darren O'Day, um, Pat Neshek, like some of these relievers are actually pretty high in command score. I mean, O'Day is 86, which is, um, you know, four points above the next closest pitcher, which is Yusmero Petit. And then Petit's five points higher than the next closest pitcher. So O'Day's, you know, nine points ahead of second place, um, which uh, coincidentally, Chapman's about eight points ahead of second place in for any Romero among relievers. But it is kind of interesting how you see these guys rise at the top, but Chapman's is very visible. I think O'Day's not so much. Um, but O'Day, you know, he got a nice payday from the Orioles too, so he's not complaining too much, I don't think. Yeah, no doubt about that. And pitching Stanima, real quick, how do you classify Stanima beyond just using innings pitched relative to league average? Uh, yeah. So for stamina, we, we looked at a number of things and it was really challenging. You know, we wanted to try and think about uh, in-game measurements, like are you able to sustain fastball velocity or, um, you know, how are you getting outs late in games, all these different things. And for all these, all three of these, we really threw a number of uh, data points at it to try and figure out what was most salient, what were the things that we could model that were most kind of accurate and effective. Um it ended up netting out where we looked at kind of the daily number of pitches thrown from a six day moving average. So essentially you get for pitchers, you're typically, or for starters, you're typically getting two starts in that Uh, for relievers. You're getting maybe two or three appearances, hopefully for some guys, maybe, four or five um and then we also wanted to look at the number of batters they're facing per game and uh, we did a little bit of complicated math we looked at the number of days of rest and things like that right so we didn't want to challenge um we didn't want to challenge uh, managers to take their relievers and have them you know face eight batters a game two days in a row just to have really good stamina scores not that anyone would do that but um we did want to make sure that we were accounting for the fact that guys do need to rest and if you're on four days rest you know you're probably not expected to go as deep into a game as you are if you're on five days rest or six days rest or whatever so we tried to account for those different things and ultimately that mix of how many pitches you're actually throwing, how many batters you're facing, and how many days of rest you have going into that um, were the most salient points in terms of identifying overall stamina. Yeah, and that's a really tricky one to measure too because I think you can have pitchers who it seems like they're throwing a lot of pitches and they maintain their velocity and their durability through multiple starts, but then the fourth start, they don't. Where they throw 120, you know, four starts in a row, maybe it's that second start that causes another one six starts later, their shoulder to start hurting or something. I feel like it's really hard to measure stamina accurately. Right. And without, you know, revealing any proprietary information or data that I'm not allowed to reveal... You know, uh, I think there's too much focus on an individual outing. Uh, You know, oh, a guy came in and threw 50 pitches or a guy came in and threw, you know, 120 pitches. Um, What really comes down to like arm health and stamina is it's the relationship between that individual outing and what your arm has been kind of built up to to that point. So, you know, it's really about the the moving average of your last, you know, X number of starts or your last X number of days throwing versus that individual outing. Uh, you know, that relationship is really important. And, you know, a guy can go and throw 120 pitches and it not be the end of the world. You know, Justin Verlander has no problem doing that. Max Scherzer has no problem doing that. Um, but they're, typically they're coming off of previous outings of 100 and 110 and whatever. And so it's not a huge uh, outlier for them. And I think that's the key to stamina. Um, but it's hard, you know, you have, you have managers in there making decisions and maybe you had a poor outing the week before, so you only threw 40 pitches and 
that can actually adversely affect you when you come back next week and throw 110, you know, so there's a lot of things that go into it. Last year, your colleague Harry Pavlidis came on the podcast to talk about pitch tunneling. You've improved the metric a little bit. Tell me what improvements went into it. Well, I, there's two big changes. One is that we have shifted it to be from the batter's point of view. You know, everything in baseball from a pitching uh, standpoint is typically viewed from the catcher's point of view. You know, we prefer to look at things as the catcher saw them. It's just easier. It's just more clean. And what we tried to do is shift it to the batter's point of view because ultimately the batter is the one who has to hit the pitch. And so this actually involved quite a bit of complicated math. We had to do some kind of uh, transformation matrices to shift these 2D points into 3D and to make some, um, you know, assessments about ratios of eye height to total height because we could pull total height from the major league baseball database but we can't pull obviously how high someone's eyes are off the ground and you know a lot of kind of complicated factors but ultimately what we wanted to do was how does what how does this pitch look to the batter how does it look to a right-handed hitter versus a left-handed hitter how does it look to jose altuve versus aaron judge and um that's one of the big changes the second one is we read some additional kind of academic research that talked about the ability of batters to uh, see the ball after a certain point and, you know, the effect of a saccade, which is a rapid eye movement, basically when your eyes jump from one point to another to track a fast moving projectile. Um, and so f- based on that information, we changed our timing point, our tunnel point to be 150 milliseconds in front of contact or home plate uh, right now. And, that's a little more accurate. You know, that is sort of where we want to be. It's time-based, which means it's relative. So for a fastball, that's a lot closer to the pitcher than it is for a curveball, right? A curveball moves a lot slower, so you have more time uh, to figure out what you're going to do. And those two updates were really the crux of everything we tried to do. And then, you know, the fun part was actually visualizing it, which was probably, I would say, a good chunk of the work went into that. But we had to do a, a ton of the sort of hardcore math work on the back end to make sure that uh, we were accurately displaying these things. Yeah, it did create some very cool visuals on the site now where people can look at individual pitch sequences from the batter's point of view. It's super cool. It's one of my favorite new features on Baseball Prospectus. But you've been listening to Jeff Long. Jeff is a writer at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at JeffLongBP. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk baseball, so 